Well, we have one last Sunday for questions, the questions Jesus asked. And for this one, we're going to look at a question Jesus asked uh, after his resurrection. This is the risen, glorified, resurrected Jesus in Acts chapter 9. And uh, here he poses a question to someone who considers themselves an enemy of God, an enemy of God's people, to Saul. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Let's look together. This is Acts chapter 9. I'm going to read verses 1 through 19. Hear the word of the Lord. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to them, saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. And Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to you, to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief of priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, brother Saul, The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. And then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, Oh, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would be with us this morning as you have been, uh, as you have been week after week after week and have been throughout our service, I pray that you would be with us in a special way through your Holy Spirit, helping us to understand what you would have us learn by looking at the story, that you would teach us in particular and personal ways, uh, that you would give us courage to hear and, uh, and that our hearts might be encouraged uh, as we look at who you are and what you did. 
And I pray for me, would you help me? Would you give me soundness of mind and clarity of thought and help me to love these friends well and to speak in a way that, that honors you? And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So at some point, I'm just going to have to admit it, that I am a, uh, I am a sucker for a good old-fashioned origin story. And uh, uh, over Christmas break, my wife suggested that our family, with some time together, go out and see the movie Wonka. And, uh, and I don't love musicals, I'll just say. It's not, like, it's not my first love in terms of what movies to see. And, but of course, I went, and, uh, and I just, it was just wonderful to be able to hear the songs again and See the Oompa Loompas and people getting carried around. Like it was just, and the reason I think that origin stories are so wonderful is that it just gives you a sense for uh, how a person, who a person was before they came to to be the person that you met. Uh, What motivates them, gives you insights into why they live the life that they do. And there are a ton of origin stories out there every year, every season. It seems like there's a new one about a superhero or some favorite story. Uh, In a lot of ways, this is the most famous conversion story uh, in the history of the world. But it's it's also a kind of an origin story that gives us insights into who Paul uh, is. Oh gosh, I got it. I got an issue. I made the mistake already. I got to give you a disclaimer. This is Saul, who is later known as Paul and uh, who we know as Paul, the writer of lots of epistles. And even while just writing this sermon, I kept getting these names wrong. So if I say Paul, I mean Saul. I need your grace on this. Um, But it gives us insights into who Saul is and what motivates him and how he became the man who, who he became. Many Many came to meet Jesus through Saul, later Paul's ministry. Many now are coming to meet Jesus through this ministry of Saul. And this is a pretty dramatic conversion story, isn't it? I mean, it's full of light, people getting struck, knocked down. The audible voice of Jesus is heard. I mean, this is high drama on the Damascus Road. And the Bible would say that this story of Saul's conversion is actually foundational. Three times in the book of Acts, this story is told. Uh, Once here, once in Acts chapter 22, again in Acts chapter 26. If you read much of Paul's writings, you won't go far before you hear Paul talking about who he was, a Pharisee of Pharisees, uh, how Jesus met him. He refers back to this over and over and over again. But I think if, you're, if you would consider yourself a follower of Christ, someone who uh, has converted and follows him, I think it's easy to look at a story like this and, and begin to ask some questions, right? That we would look at a story like this and say, is this what it's supposed to look like? Uh, I've, n- I've never heard the audible voice of Jesus before. Uh, I've never been struck over the head with light and knocked to the ground. Like, I, I, this is... This has not been my, my experience. If this is so foundational uh, and this hasn't been my experience, what does that mean? I mean, it's very easy for us to look at a story like that and wonder. Well, the, the truth is, is that the Bible shows us a myriad of different ways that people come to an awareness of who Jesus Christ is and, uh, and entrust their faith to him. Some of us here, and this is, 
This is our prayer for the child that we just baptized. I mean, some of us here never knew a day where we didn't know Jesus Christ. That's our hope. That's our hope for our children. I mean, many of us have that story. Uh, it, the Bible would affirm that. In fact, Paul wrote to, to Timothy once, and he said this. He said, you grew up knowing the scriptures from your childhood, which were able to make you wise for salvation. I mean, that's a great hope. That's true. That's uh, it's legitimate. Uh, some of us came to know Jesus Christ later in life. And we, um, you know, over the course of many conversations and, uh, and discussions with many different people and many different friends came came to embrace Jesus. It wasn't like a, a light switch that went off, but it was a, a long, kind of gradual, slow process of examination until finally we came to trust our lives to Jesus. And, and I would tell you that also is a, is, a, is a wonderful story of converting to life in Jesus Christ. In fact, that's Madeline Lingle's story. Some of you know her as a Christian author. She passed away, I think, it might have been not quite 20 years ago, something... Um, you know, it's just ballpark. But she described her, I put a quote from her in the front of the bulletin, but she described her conversion as a slow movement of intellectual acceptance. I love that line, a slow movement of intellectual acceptance. So, <clears throat> so if, if, this, if the, the, the mechanism of his conversion, or if we're not supposed to, like if we see this as a unique story of Jesus moving in history, and, uh, and, uh, and converting Saul himself, uh, that actually doesn't make it irrelevant. This, this text is actually incredibly relevant for how we're to understand what it looks like to follow Jesus, to understand our own conversion, and, to, and trust him with our lives. But I also think, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, one of my great hopes for you this morning is that we just might be able to cherish our conversion a little more. Like, we might adore it and be thankful for it, and be willing to talk about it and herald it, that we might appreciate it. And so here's what I want to do. I want to talk about, I want to talk about who was converted, who Saul was, the man Saul. I want to talk about how he was converted, how this came to be. And then I want to talk about where this conversion leads. Every conversion takes us somewhere, right? It's got to go somewhere. And so where, where this leads Saul. First, who is converted? Well, uh, you see, right... At the beginning of, uh, of uh, the story that Saul probably is like the least likely convert in church, in church history um, because he is on a mission. Verse 1 tells us that he was still breathing out. So this has been going on for a while. He was still breathing out threats uh, and murder against the disciples of the Lord. So in a previous chapter, if you look back in Acts, you will actually see Saul presiding over the stoning death of a martyr named Stephen, that he was there uh, giving his approval to it. He, and that's because Saul was on a mission. Uh, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He had at least some authority in the temple. And his mission, as he saw it, was to exterminate the spread of Christianity before it got started. That was his goal. And, and, and from reading about it, it looks like there was nothing he wasn't willing to do in order to see the movement of Christ's followers stopped in his tracks. That's what he wanted. Uh, in a previous, and so, and so in, uh, earlier in chapter 8, it says that Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. That sounds like awful hostility. I mean, that's the point. They're describing someone who is awfully hostile to the faith. 
And, uh, and that's exactly the way Paul would describe it too. In, uh, in another place where he was talking about his own story, he described it as a raging fury that obsessed him. It gives you a picture, just to give you a picture of who Paul was. That was his mission. But even in these first two verses, we're getting a sense that, uh, they're, they're, they're little, that there are glimpses of hope. That for as committed as he was to this mission, self-determined mission as he saw it, it was all just an exercise of futility. Verse 2 tells us he was carrying letters from the high priest to the synagogues at Damascus. Now, that, that could be one of two things. That could either be letters of introduction. Send, you know, the high priest would send a letter with Saul, and he would go to Damascus and give the synagogue leaders in Damascus these letters introducing him as one who operates with the authority of the Sanhedrin. And it could be that. But most people actually think these are letters of extradition, which would give him the authority to remove Christians that he found in this other city and bring them back to Jerusalem to throw them in prison. But look, the question I think that we need to ask is what, what the heck are Christians doing in Damascus anyway? I mean, Damascus is 150 miles away. It's due north of Jerusalem. It's not in Israel. It's a Syrian, it's a Syrian city. And so most people, this is, you know, a little bit of, uh, of theory, but I think it makes a lot of sense. Most people think that when Stephen was killed, that Christians began to scatter, that there were, that there were persecuted Christians uh, saw the state-sanctioned persecution that was, uh, that was happening, and they left. And some went north to Damascus. And that a Christian community in the city of Damascus was started precisely because of the persecution that was being executed in their hometown of Jerusalem. And so if that's the case, and I I personally believe it is, but if that's the case, then what we see is that Paul thinks of himself as an instrument of destruction or an instrument of, of will. But he actually seems like he's an instrument of the, the continued spread of faith in Jesus Christ in new places, in new territories. That Christ is building his church, no matter what stands against it, in unlikely ways and in unlikely places. It's 2024 this year which marks the 50th anniversary of a conference. I don't know how to pronounce the name of this city. It's a Swiss city, Lausanne. Lausanne. Anybody know? You can tell me after. I'm going to call it Lausanne at the risk of, you know, whatever. But there was a conference, great, big, huge conference in Lausanne in 1974. John Stott presided over it. Uh, Billy Graham was a part of making sure this happened. And uh, you want to know, um, you want to try to do something fun, get thousands of religious leaders all in the same room and just see what happens. You know? <laughs> uh, 2,700 religious leaders from 150 different countries all gathered up in the same place with the shared ambition to see the proclamation of go- the gospel furthered to, every, to all the ends of the earth, as Jesus said. That was their goal. And, of course, they made observations, they produced papers, they made statements, they, they were talking about best practices and sharing resources and experience. I mean, it was just this, this, uh, this amazing conference. And they made a couple of points that I want to share with you. 
Uh, first, what they noted, this was 1974, 50 years ago, they said this. They were noting that the Christianity center of gravity had moved. It was once in Europe and North America, but it had moved southward uh, to Africa, Asia, and Latin America. The center, like more Christians are moving uh, in that way. Faith in Christ is that way. And that it was growing, especially in places that were traditionally unfriendly to Christianity. And even in places where, uh, where persecution was, was incredibly powerful. But here's the other thing they said, and this is, this is what, I, what I want to tell you. Persecution, this is what they said. Persecution is a storm. It's a storm by which the seeds of God's word are scattered, dispersing the sower and the reaper over many fields. It is one of God's ways of extending his kingdom. I don't know how much 2,700, I don't know how much, 2,700 people can agree on anything, you know. <laughs> Religious leaders all in the same place, but they, they agreed on that. Their shared ambition, their desire to see more people know the gospel. And this is what they were saying to the church about one of the ways to understand it. One of the things this passage is teaching us, I, I want to name two. One is that even the hardest, most self-determined opponents of the faith are not beyond the reach of Jesus. And it's also telling us that even the most powerful attempts to discredit, persecute, and even eliminate faith in Jesus can lead to more widespread embrace of faith in Jesus. And we need to think about that. We need to think about that whenever we're tempted to write off a person as too far gone. We need to think about that when we think about cities and countries. When we have thoughts like, what's going on over there? You know, like nothing is beyond the reach of Jesus. And we also need to think about that every time that a philosophy or an ideology or, you know, something that feels hostile to our faith comes along uh, and we wonder about it and we become afraid of it. And we need to think about that when we look at the world that we're in and we worry for it and we wonder about, you know, what this is going to mean. What is this leading to? We wonder about it for our kids. And look, I get the fear. I, I get it. I get, the, I get that fear. But one of, this, one of the things that is being made clear to us in this passage, and really throughout the entire Bible, is that there is one who is much more familiar with the powers of the world than we are. That he is sovereign, that he moves at will, and that we can trust him. In fact, this, this, whole, this whole text is actually a detailed, well, is actually an explanation of Jesus' sovereign will coming face to face with Saul's will. This is how he was converted. It's, it, 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 is, uh, it shows us how Jesus' sovereign, both his sovereign will and his tender mercies are, are both bound up to, with each other. What do I mean by that? Well, um, the road to Damascus, six-day journey, uh, it looks like they're, it's Saul and his crew are getting close to the, uh, to the city. It looks like they're kind of beginning to draw near to it. And Saul is full of will. 
right? I mean, he's self-determined. He knows what he's there to do. He's probably already thinking about the first things that he'll do or where he'll go. And, uh, and this job that has been, been before him, he's probably had five days of travel just to think about it. And uh, when all of a sudden he is knocked down, I like to imagine him being on a horse. I don't know if he, he might have been, I don't know, but he is knocked down. Uh, uh, chapter 26 tells us that, uh, that it was about midday, noon, two o'clock, and that the light that shone was brighter than the midday sun. That Paul saw, sorry, Saul had come face to face with someone whose will was greater than his own, with someone whose sovereign authority was greater than his own. And, uh, and Saul asks, who are you, Lord? Now, this is important because sometimes we're tempted to look at that and say, what are, did, did Saul immediately know that that was Jesus? Most think that that's not actually a confession of Christ as Lord at that point. Lord was a part of their common language. It's a little stronger than our word for sir, um, but it, Lord is something that you would usually use to address someone who is superior, like a king or an official or something like that. And so Jesus is, sh- or sorry, Saul is struck to his knees in the middle of the street, and he is wondering who this is, someone or something that is much more powerful than he is, has come to him. And what he knows is that it's someone whose will transcends his own. And when you look at the story, what you see, if pan back a little bit, you actually see Jesus exerting his sovereign will all over the place. I mean, look, you got two people on both sides of the spectrum as to what it means to follow Jesus Christ. You've got Ananias. We're going to talk about him a little bit later. But you got Ananias. He's a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ on one end of the spectrum. And uh, he reasons with Jesus a little bit, but in, in the end, he, is, he ends up obeying Jesus Christ. And then you got Saul, the most unlikely candidate to, be, to actually obey Jesus, and now he is forced to, to do what Jesus uh, has for him to do. Jesus is just exerting his sovereign will in all kinds of ways. And so when he's confronting Saul, we see this in verse 15, we actually see that he is intending to bend Saul's will toward his own. Verse 15, he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. Before this book ends, we'll see him doing all three of those things. Jesus exerts his sovereign will. Now, what about his tender mercy? Well, frankly, based on what we know about Saul, what does he deserve And what does he get? In fact, one of the things that's amazing is that it appears that Jesus, even at the moment he's confronting Saul, he's already making preparations for what he's going to do with Saul, where he's going to take him, and what he's going to do, and how he's going to take care of him. There's great tenderness in that. But you see it most clearly And what he says to Saul, 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 the double repetition of that, when you read that, it reflects intense emotion. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? That is intensely personal. That for Jesus, there's no difference. 
that persecuting his people is the same as persecuting him. There's this intense solidarity that Jesus expresses about how he feels about the people that he loves. You also see it in how he cares for Saul. Go ahead and enter into the city. You will be told what to do. And it it just shows us that when Jesus takes us apart, he also puts us back together as his people because he loves his people and he pursues his people with tender mercy. You know, I think even knocking Saul to the ground was a mercy. Jesus kind of caged him. He knocked him down. He held him. He, He gave him nowhere to go. One person called this, a, on Saul's behalf, a forced collision with the truth. He was forcing the truth to confront Saul. And it's there on his knees in the street that he's struck with the most compelling awareness that Jesus is not dead, but he's alive. He's alive. He's speaking to him. He's confronting him. He's coming to him to stop him from what he was doing but also to win him to himself. Sovereign will, tender mercy, both given given to Paul. And and one of the things he hears is that all the things that these disciples have been saying all along about how Jesus actually rose from the dead must have been true. They They were right all along. Listen, the word convert, When you think about conversion, it can be kind of, we don't use that word that much anymore to describe what it means to turn toward Jesus. But when we say the word convert, it really just means to be facing one way and to turn around. It's a a conversion. And so what we're seeing here is that Jesus is actually putting a firm hand on Paul and turning him away from one thing and turning him toward himself. Do you see the, the compulsion of this? That Jesus, that, that Jesus knocks Paul to his knees and turns him toward himself as an act of great mercy. C.S. Lewis's story of his conversion is actually very, very similar. Uh, some of you have read about this. It's, uh, I love this picture. He says he was brought into the kingdom kicking, struggling, resentful. And he was darting out his eyes in every way looking for a place to escape. And then he said this, I did not see then what is now the most shining and obvious thing, the divine humility, which will accept a convert even on such terms. The hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men, and his compulsion is our liberation. His compulsion, the the, the hardness of God is softer than the kindness of man. And his compulsion toward himself is actually our liberation. See, Jesus with a, a firm hand reaches out and he with the, the hardness of God, which is softer than the kindness of man, compels Saul to turn toward himself. And Saul becomes liberated from, from this mission that he was about. If you're a Christian this morning, um, if you would consider yourself a follower of Christ, whether a young one, an, uh, an old one, someone who's walked with Christ for a long time, someone who came to Christ later in life, listen, it, 
uh, it is because that God, Jesus put a, a firm hand on your shoulder and turned you away from one thing and turned you toward himself with his sovereign will. He did that. I love how C.S. Lewis says his compulsion is our liberation because the picture that we get in this passage is that it is freeing us from things that we were chasing beforehand. That he is actually liberating us from, uh, from, from the things that are bad for us. And he turns us toward himself where we find all the gifts of his riches of mercy. Because in Jesus, in Jesus, he gives us the gift of his sacrifice on the cross, his atoning sacrifice and the forgiveness of sins that comes with it. He gives us all the promises that come by his resurrection. Listen, Jesus turns us toward himself so that we would, listen, so that we would have all of him. That his great gift is he gives us all of himself. All of us. For all of him. And so if you're a Christian this morning, this is, this is one of the things I really would love for you to do, is just to spend some time, whatever it takes, to cultivate a heart of thankfulness for what Jesus has done for you. What does it look like? What would it look like for you to take some time and just cherish the salvation that you have? Reconciliation with God through the work of Jesus Christ. What would that look like? to cultivate a thankful heart. Psalm 55, which is very interesting. Psalm 55 is a, is a psalm of repentance. And in there, David says, restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. What would that look like for you? When Ananias goes to Paul, Saul, when Ananias goes to Saul, one of the ways Jesus is, encourages him that it's going to be okay is that he says, you will find him praying. Whenever I imagine what Saul must have been praying about during those few days that he had before Ananias came to him, I think that he probably was praying for lots of repentance, right? Like newfound guilt, uh, hashing through, unlearning everything he thought he knew and learning about Jesus. Uh, I'm sure that he he was uh, praying prayers of worship, uh, for Jesus, but I think that my bet is he spent a lot, a lot of time just saying thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. That's my encouragement for you, is that you would go spend some time saying thank you. Celebrating, celebrating in your heart what it means to belong to Jesus. Where does this conversion lead? I want to just make two quick points about this, because it really is a beautiful story of Paul, Saul, and Ananias' interactions at the last part of this story. Ananias, I think, is one of those unsung heroes. You know, we don't, we don't really talk about Ananias. He gets just a few verses, and I fell in love with him over the past week as I was looking at actually what he did. Now, we can all understand his reluctance, right? He, uh, Jesus comes to him in a vision, and he says, go to the house calls straight, there you will see a man of Tarsus named Saul, and Ananias knows exactly who he is. Can you imagine that, how that conversation went? Like, are you serious? Like, I know who that, everybody knows who this guy is. But Jesus reasons with him. He doesn't rebuke him, but he reasons with him. Ananias obeys, and we are so glad he did. Because here we just get this beautiful picture of the way Saul is treated, not by 
not just by Jesus, but by one of Jesus' faithful disciples. Ananias goes, and he lays his hands on him, and he says, Brother Saul, the literal translation of that is Saul, my brother. This might have been Saul, my brother. This might have been the first words Saul hears from Christian lips after his conversion. And what are they? They are words of fraternal welcome. Is what Saul is, is, is noting is that just as he has become reconciled to Jesus Christ, he is now reconciled to Jesus' people. Uh, enemies became brothers in this story. Only Jesus is capable of such beautiful reconciliation. And Paul will then dedicate the rest of his life proclaiming the, re- the, the, the cherished reconciliation that we get in Jesus Christ. And he also experiences healing, right? So scales fall from his eyes. Luke is a doctor, and so I think he's throwing in some medical terminology here. But scales fall from his eyes. He receives the Holy Spirit. He stands up, right? And then I love that they just included this, that Luke includes this. He rises, was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. What's that describing? Physical, spiritual nourishment. It's describing comprehensive healing that's given to Saul through Jesus Christ. Reconciliation and healing. And what does Paul then become? He becomes a herald of Jesus' reconciliation and healing for the rest of his life, for the rest of his life. Legend has it that Saul one day uh, became a martyr under the reign of Nero. First Clement says uh, that this is not canonical, but First Clement declares that he died an example of patient endurance. He became an agent of Jesus' reconciliation and healing. You know, when I think about it, this isn't just an origin story. You know what this is? This is a rescue story, right? It's not an origin story about Saul. This is really about Jesus describing the rescue that he gives to his people, how he rescues his people, how he rescues you and me, and turns us in to agents of, reconcil- of Jesus' reconciliation and healing. And so it proclaims the truth of these things, that they're found in one place, in the one who continues forever, who is able to save all who draw near to God through him, and ever lives to intercede for all who call on his name. Amen. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Oh, what joy it is to be yours. And even though this life uh, can be difficult, and, uh, and, and full of suffering and full of curious joys. Uh, Lord, you are always with us. That just as you came to us once, you promised that you will never leave us until the end of the age. And so I pray that you would help us to cherish these things that are true, these promises that you give us through your work, the things that you did, and the things that you promised us. Would you dwell richly in us and upon us over these next few moments as we take this meal and celebrate what you have done. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.